Luke, Luke chapter 12. where the Lord Jesus teaches a number of things. We'll be reading in the parable of the the rich man who thought he was in control of his life to the point where he could do whatever he liked. That'll tie in with what James writes in our text at the end of James 4. So Luke 12, verses 13 through 34, someone in the crowd said to him, and that's to the Lord Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's as far as the Scripture reading will go. I invite you to turn with me to the letter of James. In the Pew Bible, it's page 1291, 1291. We've come in the sermon series on this letter to the fourth chapter, 
We'll be looking at the last two paragraphs, which, which do blend together, or at least there's a theme that ties them together. So, verses 11 through 17. The inspired James writes, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? to judge your neighbor. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That's our text for this morning's sermon. In response, to the preaching, we'll sing two songs back-to-back, Psalm 39, stanza 3, which echoes some of the words of James about our life being a mist or a breath, and then hymn 40, along with it, hymn 40, the stanzas 4 and 5, about our Lord, whose life is not a mist and who reigns supreme forever. We'll sing the stanzas four and five of hymn 40. Holy and loved people of God in our Lord Jesus Christ, since the beginning of James 3, he has been speaking, James that is, about the sins and the dangers of the tongue. He's spoken to us about the fact that our tongues can both curse our neighbor while also blessing God. So our tongues reveal at times our hypocrisy. James's interest in how our words can damage our relationship with our neighbor continues in the latter part of chapter 3 when he weaves into his discussion the idea of false wisdom versus true wisdom. A false wisdom, says James, it triggers the tongue. It triggers the tongue to do a lot of boasting out of, its, uh, out of the heart's selfish ambition. That's verse 14. And that in turn, says James, leads to all kinds of disorder and vile practices in the church, in our families, in our relationships. This false or worldly wisdom leads us to use our words to quarrel and fight, says James in chapter 4, verse 1. It is even so that the words we speak to God in prayer 
arising out of our sinful hearts, those words are often evil words. Asking God for things so that we might spend them on our passions and pleasures. So James has been busy for quite a while now showing how we can get ourselves into trouble with both our neighbor and with our God by a thoughtless, careless use of our tongue. And that's what also ties the two paragraphs of our text together as we come to the end of chapter 4. Both paragraphs involve the sins of the tongue. The first paragraph, verses 11 and 12, is speaking against our neighbor. And the second paragraph has us, James speaks there about using our words as if we were God Himself. And as we come to the end of this chapter and the end of this section on the tongue, we can see an escalation of sin here. James is bringing the matter to a a climax by showing that what so often lies beneath the sins of the tongue is a hubristic presumption on our part that each and every one of us is, is above others, that we are basically an island of supremacy to ourselves. That's underneath the sins of the tongue. And so the Holy Spirit, through James in these, this text, is asking us, is confronting us with this, this fundamental question, just who do you think you are? That'll be the theme this morning coming from the Holy Spirit to us. Who do you think you are? We'll see two things. There's only one judge, and secondly, there's only one Almighty Well, you'll recall from the earlier portion of chapter 4 that James has been pretty sharp, actually pretty cutting, when he addressed the churches in the the first portion of chapter 4. He calls them, in verse 4, you adulterous people. He's also commanded them, in verse 9, to be wretched and mourn and weep. He's calling them to repent. So the verses 1 through 10 have come across as a stinging rebuke. It came across that way to us because we're also addressed in this letter. This letter still comes to the church today. But now in our text, we notice a change in James's tone. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. If all you read was the chapter 4, verses 1 through 10... You might think that James was speaking in this letter to a, to a rebellious people whom he had no use for, but here he reminds us that for all the sin that is there in the church, he still regards us as brothers and sisters. And it's good for us to reflect on that for a moment, beloved. Despite the wicked things that we can say or do to one another or even think about another, despite the absolute need for us to repent of those sins and take nothing away from that, yet for all of that, God still looks upon us as His people, just like He looked upon the churches that James was writing to as His people. They are still brothers and sisters. 
God speaks the same way through the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and the others. There can be at times very harsh condemnation, a call to repentance, threats, threats of judgment, but it's always followed by a word of compassion, a word of love, a, a word of endearment. God might be righteously upset with us, and if we don't repent, God will absolutely bring judgment upon us, but for all of that, we are still His own, and He, he loves us. What a comfort for each of us, don't you think? How easily I can hurt my God with my sin. How often I can break His command. And yet, God comes after me as His child. Can we look at each other that way too, brothers and sisters? We might very well have to call someone out for sin, and we have an obligation to do so. We might even well be righteously angry because one or more church members has done something grievous and wrong, but if we bring them a word of rebuke, a word of correction, can we also regard them still as brothers and sisters in Christ and still feel love, still feel compassion? James's rebuke here in verse 11, is that we are not to speak evil against one another. That's an obvious sin of the tongue, isn't it? He uses that expression three times in verse 11. And there's a verb that underlies that expression. The verb simply means to speak against. Not necessarily the word evil is, a, is an interpretation, but the, the verb is just to speak against but almost always it's used in the Scripture in a negative sense. Let me give a couple of examples, like when Aaron uh, and Miriam spoke against their brother Moses in Numbers 12. They, they basically were bad-mouthing him. That's the sense of this word. Or when Israel spoke against God in the desert when they ran out of food and water, they started accusing God of unfair treatment. And, of course, that amounted to blasphemy. So this, this expression to speak against it, the, the best basic concept there is slander. It's speaking things that are false. It's speaking things that are, are hurtful, that are untrue and condemning. And James says, you must not do that. Now, James could have stopped there, just a simple command and moved on, it hardly needs an explanation, doesn't it? It hardly needs a defense that this is an important thing, that we are not to slander, not to speak evil against others, especially fellow Christians. I mean, the Lord had said this to His people in, Le in Leviticus 19, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. A few verses later in Leviticus 19, God commanded, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we know that James has that passage on his mind from uh, chapter 2 where he quoted Leviticus 19. And he mentions the law in verse 11 as well of our text. So, 
James, he, he could have left it at that. Listen, people don't slander, and he could have moved on, but he sees an opportunity to go deeper here into one of the basic reasons why we should never slander, never speak lies about one another. And it's a reason in verse 11 that may sound a little strange at first. James writes this, The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. That would be then the law of the Lord. And this might leave us puzzled and asking, well, James, what do you mean by that? That's, that sounds strange to our ears. I mean, what do, if, even if I do speak evil words against a brother or sister, what does that have to do with the law? I mean, I'm not judging the law. I'm not even talking about the law. I haven't even mentioned the word law. And all of that may very well be true, but James is saying, think now. Think very, very carefully about what you're actually doing when you slander or condemn someone without just cause. That's what that word judging means in this context. Elsewhere in the Bible, the Lord certainly calls us to judge the actions of both ourselves and our neighbor. With, we have to do that with great care and fairness. You can think of the whole command to discipline in the church. That involves judging the actions of church members in equity. But just as often in many places, God also forbids us from rushing to judgment, from proceeding to condemn someone unheard and unfairly without knowing all the facts, and just pronouncing someone a worthless sinner. That's the kind of unjust judging that James is talking about in verse 11. So, the logic of James in this verse is this. You know what the law commands. You know that the law commands you to love your neighbor as yourself, and you know that part of that law is specifically that you are not to slander anybody. That's all part of loving your neighbor. So, when you now turn around and actually slander your brother, you're breaking the law. By your actions, you're saying, this particular law isn't good. I'm going to ignore this law. I'm going to set it to the side, this law about slander. By your actions, you are saying, the better law is this, go ahead and speak evil against your brother or sister. James says when you, when you do this by your actions, you are actually putting yourself into the chair of the judge, the lawmaker. James is insistent, and he builds up to this with relentless reasoning. By your actions, you judge that the current law is bad, unsound, evil. It should be replaced. Then James says, but verse 11, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, you're a judge of the law. And you recall from chapter 2 that James had said, 
we have to not just be hearers of the law, but doers of the law. Don't just hear the word, but do the word. Our lot is to be doers of the law. Who do you think you are? That's the implication. James is, is pressing his case here against that very common sin of the tongue slander, and he says, Don't, do you understand that when you carry on speaking falsehoods against another person, you are, in effect, putting yourself above your neighbor. You're putting yourself above the law. In fact, you're putting yourself right in God's chair, the judge's chair. Your attack against your neighbor is actually attack against the law, and therefore it's an attack against the lawgiver. Who do you think you are? Do we ever consider the weight of these sins, the sins of the tongue, beloved? Those sins of the tongue, they roll off so easily. Probably gossip is our number one sin in that regard, but slander and lies are never that far behind. And even if it is only gossip, <clears throat> the reasoning of James holds good, doesn't it? It can be applied to any of God's commands. For God also has commanded us not to gossip. You can find it many times in Proverbs and elsewhere in the New Testament. If you gossip about your neighbor by your actions, you are saying that God's command not to gossip, that's actually a bad idea. I'm going to replace it with a better one. Go ahead and gossip whatever you want about your neighbor. When we gossip about our neighbor... Or, or even worse, that lie about that other person. We put ourselves above that person. We put ourselves above the law. And we put ourselves on the throne of God. That's what we're doing. Do we understand that? Just who do we think we are? That's what James is getting at in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge he who is able to save and destroy but you who are you to judge your neighbor there's only one judge and it's not you and it's not me there's only one lawgiver that's the lord god so whenever we break any of god's commands and fail to repent fail to break with our sin we are arrogantly telling God by our actions, we're telling God, shove off. And we're laying claim to His throne. Do we understand that? That's how God looks at it. And in His point of view is the one that counts. We may not articulate that idea in our thoughts, but the Holy Spirit in our text tells us plain and simple, that's what's going on in our actions, and God will have none of it. The fact is, the unchangeable truth is, there's only one lawgiver, only one judge, and He will call each of us to account at the moment of His choosing, just as He did the rich man in Jesus' parable, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And tell me, brothers and sisters, 
what would we say to the judge of all the earth if our soul was required of us today? How would we defend our speaking ill of another person, let alone another member of Christ? How could we defend that? Brothers and sisters, each of us needs to to double down and examine our own hearts and think carefully about the way we use our words. And we need to repent. Any put-down of my neighbor is an attempt to push God out of the judge's chair, and that is just evil through and through. So we need to pray, Father, grant us the grace to control our thoughts about our neighbor, to control also our words so that we, we think of others and we speak of others as you do, Father. The Father doesn't gossip. The Father doesn't slander. The Father always speaks with great care, with love, compassion, justice, patience, always fair. Father, grant us wisdom. Remember what James taught us in chapter 1? Grant us wisdom to humble ourselves in your sight to acknowledge that you and you only are God and judge and that you and you only are the Almighty. For humility is the antidote to the sin described in both paragraphs of our text. James had already exhorted us along those lines in verse 10 to be humble before the Lord, and now he comes back to it in verses 13 through 16, particularly verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So the underlying sin of this paragraph is, is the sin of arrogance, our arrogance, just as it was when we pushed God out of the judge's chair. Well, what kind of arrogance is James referring to particularly in verses 13 through 16? It's the arrogance, he says, it's the arrogance of thinking that you and I actually control our lives. It starts in verse 13 with a very common, seemingly benign way of speaking. Come now, says James, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town. We will spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Well, we might ask, James, uh, what, what's, what's wrong with that? What's the problem with that? We have to make plans, don't we? We certainly hear about the wisdom of planning in the Bible, for example, in Proverbs, without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, plans succeed. Or elsewhere in Proverbs, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. So we know from Scripture, from experience, that planning is critical. Scheduling things are important. Those are very practical matters that help us actually get things done trying to anticipate risks or pitfalls, as well as rewards and consequences of our actions are all part of wisely navigating through life. We even have a proverb of our own in the 20 and 
21st and 20th century, the proverb is failing to plan is planning to fail. So we get it. We have to plan. What then, we want to ask James, is the issue? Well, the problem is not planning itself, but it's not planning sufficiently in a certain way. God absolutely wants us to look ahead and make plans, but more than anything else, He wants us to look to Him. And that's the missing part. He wants us to look to Him as the one who oversees our plans, as the one who's in charge of blessing our plans or not, the one who guides our plans, the one who can and does change our plans. You have to include God in the plans. That's what was missing. The problem James sees in the church is that the church members were in, 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 together in the assembly on Sunday singing God's praises, talking all about God on Sunday, but back to work on Monday through Saturday, and, and suddenly God was out of the picture. They were like the arrogant man we sang about in Psalm 10. He proudly thinks, I shall forever stand, for I shall never with misfortune meet. There's nothing that can stop what I have planned. Brothers and sisters, is God in your picture Monday through Saturday? Does the Lord God figure prominently into your plans as the key to their success? As a business owner, as an employee, as a mother or father, as a student or retired person, do you make your plans knowing that you're not in control of your life? God is. That's really the kernel of this second paragraph, James's point. Verse 13, he's saying to the people that he's writing to, look, you, you, you make travel plans. You confidently announce your schedule for traveling to do business for a whole year, and you seem to know in advance that you're going to make a profit at the end of the year, and you'll come back safe and sound. Just who do you think you are, James is implying. For when you make a statement like that, he says to them and to us, you are telling everyone that you believe you're in charge of your safety and health, that you're in control of your time, that you're in control of your wealth. Like the rich man in Christ's parable, you think that you rule and govern and control all the events and all the persons surrounding you so that you are cocksure that one year from today you'll actually come back in good health a very rich man. But the Holy Spirit says to you in verse 14, what is your life? That's, that's right out of the text. What is your life? We have to ponder what our life is. You and I, says James in verse 14, you and I are like a mist. Just a little puff of air, like, you know, on a morning like this, cool morning, you, you step outside, you breathe into the air, you can see a little bit of a white mist. How long can you see that mist? Second, two seconds? 
then it's gone. You can never get it back. That's what we are in God's eyes, in the light of eternity. This is such a problem for us in our natural, self-centered, pride-filled heart that though we are born humans, that you and I are just walking piles of dust. You know that, right? We are from the dust, and we will return to the dust. So we're just earthlings in a very literal way, and yet we somehow seem to think that we are invincible, that we can guarantee outcomes that we want, that we can manufacture our own success. Isn't this true also of ourselves? When God allows us and grants us success in, in business or at school or in home life, in no time flat, we can find ourselves, maybe we don't say it, maybe we do, but we find ourselves inwardly crediting our success to ourselves, patting ourselves on the back. We've been good planners. We've been good savers. We've been good business persons. We've been good parents. We start to think that we can do whatever we put our mind to, that we can make this much money by, by the time I'm this age, or I'll be getting married by this time in my life, and I'll have this many kids. James says, verse 14, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. You're talking about years down the road. You don't even know what tomorrow. You can't predict the weather for tomorrow. The weatherman can't predict the weather for tomorrow. How much less than can you and I predict and guarantee our health, our safety, our wealth, our success? You and I, in other words, we're not on the throne. There's only one who actually controls the nitty-gritty of our lives. There's only one who has the power and the authority to call the shots about our health, our wealth, our prosperity. There's only one Almighty, not us, it's God. And we need to start acting like that. That's the upshot of our text. The bottom line sin that James is speaking of is the arrogance of the prideful heart. Just like we unthinkingly can so easily put ourselves in the lawmaker's seat and, and, and become the judge, so often we unthinkingly put ourselves in the Almighty's seat. And that's a great offense against God. The sins of the tongue. In other words, they arise out of an arrogant heart and they do untold damage to our relationship with our neighbors and to our relationship with God. When we're, we're busy on a horizontal level, it has an effect on the vertical. We should never forget that. So, beloved, let each of us stop and check our hearts and humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. And that would be then the Lord Jesus Christ our God and our Savior. Notice how James mentions him in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The Lord willing, that's, that's a, a more common saying among us, and it's good that we have that in our mindset. We just need to have it in our mind all the time, whether or not we're saying the expression is secondary. But the mindset has to be 
as the Lord or if the Lord wills. And that's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, James started the letter by calling himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 7, he spoke about asking things that we need from the Lord. And in chapter 2, verse 1, James highlighted this high position of, of Jesus again. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So when you, when you back up a little bit and look at verses 11 through 16, and you see James speaking about the judge and the Lord, who does he think of? Who can that be but the Savior Jesus Christ? The one who has been raised up on high in heaven, seated at the right hand of his Father, granted all authority in heaven and on earth, given the name that is above all names, as Paul says. So, brothers and sisters, it, it's very good to, to think of it this way. It comes down to this. You and I, we receive our health from the Lord Jesus. We receive our safety in our travels from Christ. It is Jesus who oversees our financial transactions. It's Jesus who gives us success or not. It is the Lord Jesus also who came to this earth as a man to die for your sins and mine. The same Jesus now reigns as the Almighty God. His Father has given Him the control. It's the Lord Jesus who controls every breath you take and every move you make. The thing to do then is to place yourselves in His hands. It's to pray to Him for all your needs, to pray for Him to bless your travels, your time, your treasure, with the intention of using what you receive in the service of the King? You and I, we are not the Almighty, but we live to please the Almighty. And the Almighty has died to give us the very life we have. He's died in order to guard our lives and govern our lives and guide our lives to unfold according to His master plan, a plan that has us living with Him in glory forever. Should we not then, in everything we do, consciously, humbly put ourselves into His hands? Let us commit our ways, all our ways, to Him, the Lord Almighty, so that our lives will be so led to bring Him the glory. Remember Psalm 115, beginning of the service? To you be the glory, not to us, to you. Humility. Meekness. Knowing our place before God with respect to our neighbor. These, we learn from James, are the fundamentals for building peace among neighbors, between neighbors, and peace everywhere else, too. If we didn't know these things before, we do now. So James's warning in verse 17 is right on the mark. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
But love, let us be those who know what the right thing is and do it. A humble heart will lead to gentle words, rolling off a gentle tongue, which will in turn bless our brothers and sisters to the praise of Christ Jesus. Who wouldn't want that, right? Amen.